We are going to take a moment and we're going to uh, dive into two scriptures, uh, two uh, scriptures in different chapters of Exodus, but connect really, really well. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 22. And then we are going to be uh, in verse 30 and 31. And then we're going to jump over to Exodus 16. And we're going to be in verses 10 through 15. So writing, uh, reading a little bit of scripture today, I'm believing that God's going to do a lot with it. Exodus chapter 14, verse 19 through 22 says this. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near to the other all night. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Verse 22, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them and on their right and their left. Verse 30, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And what I want to do is flip over to chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 10 through 15. Exodus chapter 16, verse 10 through 15. It says this, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew laid on the ground in the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. What I want to do for the next few minutes that we're sharing together is I want to talk about the topic and the truth of endurance. Endurance. What I want to title the message is the in-between. The in-between. And talking about three types of endurance. An inevitable endurance. An essential endurance and a hopeful endurance, the in-between, an inevitable endurance, an essential endurance, and a hopeful endurance. Will you pray with me for a moment? Lord, we believe you and we trust you. God, we submit this time to you, saying, Lord, it is better used in your hands, so Holy Spirit, have your way. Would I decrease that you might increase, and we might see exactly what you want to teach us in this moment, Lord. Open our eyes, open our ears to see and hear all that you want. Father, we love you so much, and more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Sean Bearden. Uh, 
he is a ultra marathoner. You ever just listen to podcasts and you get there and you don't know why you're listening to a podcast? That was me. I was listening to this podcast about ultra marathoners and this guy, Sean Bearden, came up. Have I ever run an ultra marathon? Absolutely not. Do I plan to run an ultra marathon? Absolutely not. Have I run a marathon? Absolutely not. But somehow I'm on this podcast listening to this guy talk about ultra marathons. If you don't know what an ultra marathon is, a marathon is 22.6 miles, right? An ultra marathon is 100 kilometers, 62 miles. This is an ultra marathon. And he's talking on this podcast, and as he's introing, he, he brings up um, a question that people always ask him. He says, now, whenever I tell people I do ultra marathons, one of the first things they always ask is probably what you're thinking, right? Why? Why do you run 62 miles? And it was really, really interesting because as he goes through it, my thought, and he says other people's thoughts usually think, oh, you run to it to like escape, right? Or to like... Uh, figure out something by like losing yourself or going through pain. He's like, well, the first time you run it to see if you can do it, like it's a challenge and, and you try and just accomplish the feat. But he was like, actually, I kind of find myself while I run ultramarathons. That there's something inside of him that he experiences and notices, finds in himself as he runs 62 miles. And he says, oftentimes people think, and what I thought is that in an ultramarathon, I can only imagine that as you're running, there comes a point where you just check out. And you're just like, I no pain. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to get to the end. I know where the, the check mark is. I'm not going to think about anything. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to like check out and wait till it's over. And he said actually something really, really interesting. He says it changes him and something happens when you push yourself beyond your limits. He says, uh... People wait, or people think that I just check out and wait till it's over. But he says running ultra marathons for him, in order for him to be changed, he says it requires him to be fully present and fully available in the now. Which is so interesting to me because I think that this applies to our spiritual endurance really well. Where some of us might be going through a difficult trial and we check out and wait till it's over. Instead of being fully available to God and fully present in front of him so that we might be shaped in the middle, in the in-between to look like him. And some of us go through trials and issues and trouble and we just wait till it's over. And we check out. We say, I'm just going to wait till it's, I'm going to get to the end. It doesn't matter. This sucks. I don't like it. I'm just going to wait till it's done. And we miss out on the endurance of being shaped spiritually into the image of Christ. In the in-between. The in-between, an inevitable endurance. Most of our lives, it's interesting, are lived in the in-between. And yet, most of our faith, sadly, is exercised in the extremes. Have you noticed that? That most of our faith, we typically use it when it comes to really high moments and really low moments. And most of our life is lived in between those moments. I'm not where I want to be. And I know where I'm at. And we use faith to get to another place, but not faith in the middle of the place that we're in. And we need endurance in the in-between. 
And oftentimes we just check out even though most of our life is lived in the in-between. And we neglect and forsake the faith that's needed in the middle for the faith that's needed to get to the end. An inevitable endurance. An inevitable endurance. From the beginning, God's people have been chosen and also they've been chosen and had a need for an inevitable endurance. I mean, some, some of us think that like God's chosen people means that I am going to have a great life and it will be easy and God will bless me and I'm going to go and my life will just look like rainbows and butterflies from the moment I accept Jesus to the moment that I go and be with him. And we have this, this weird understanding that endurance isn't actually inevitable, and we get in trouble sometimes because oftentimes we call things additional that God calls inevitable. And we say endurance is needed for the extracurricular Christians, for the, for the super Christians, for, for the people in the scriptures who really needed to endure so that they could write the Bible so that I might benefit. We, we, we push off some things that God might actually call inevitable and we call them additional. Now, the reason why that is an issue is because we need to look at the words of Jesus where he says, actually, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus, we love the promises of Jesus. I'll always be with you, never leave you, never forsake you. Those are beautiful. Guess what? He also promised us that in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said, they hate me and I'm the master. Don't you think they're going to hate you if you follow me? In this world, you will have trouble, but what? Take heart for I've overcome the world. Trouble is actually a promise that we see in scripture. And some of us, this, this is messes us up because we think when we follow Jesus, he's going to make my life great and honeymoons and, and butterflies and, and, and rainbows. I don't know why I think those things are like the personification of a great life, but we think God's just going to make a great life for us, right? And we have this misunderstanding that God is here to keep me out of trouble instead of keep me in trouble. And because we think that God has designed my life to keep me out of trouble and God is an accessory I add on to my life to make sure nothing bad happens to me, we get really confused when bad things happen to us and we don't understand that God is actually working to keep us in trouble. Not to keep you in trouble longer than you need to be in trouble, but to hold on to you in trouble, to protect you in trouble, to be with you in trouble. Now the issue where we find ourselves finding this theology is that we actually know that God does good, but we're not so sure sometimes that God is good. The issue that manifests in is when we believe that God just does good, what happens when bad things happen to you? We then, now the condition of our lives, testify that maybe God is not as good as you thought he was. Because we have a theology that says God just does good things. And it's so important that we don't just have a theology of what God can do, but his character. And his character says that he is good. So if I have an issue where life is not treating me as good as I think life should treat me, I don't have a theology that's so flimsy that causes me to point fingers. I can still raise hands because I can believe that God just doesn't do good, that that he is good. 
It's an important distinction, an important understanding of who God is to you that he doesn't just keep you from trouble, but he keeps you in trouble. It messes up your theology, I know. Because we're like, no, but I don't like God's supposed to help. No, why? No. And we get really frustrated at God. But let me submit to you that maybe, just maybe, endurance is inevitable in the Christian life. There's an inevitable endurance that comes with following Jesus. And if we have a right theology, a right understanding of who God is, we don't have to point fingers at God and say, why aren't you being better to me? Why isn't my life as good as I think it should be? My life now is not the standard of God's goodness. And some of us measure how good God is by how good he's been to you. And if my life is good, then God's good. But if my life isn't good, then God isn't, God isn't as good anymore. And then an inevitable endurance. And I'm not saying that God is the author of pain. Don't hear that. God does not author pain. He does not originate pain or suffering. God is a good God. What he does is that he promises to use it. So when sin came into the world, he promised that he would use it. That anything that the enemy went for evil, that God would turn around and use for the good of those who, are, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And now I don't have to judge the goodness of God based on the condition of my life. And here's what it does, church, is that when God is good and he doesn't just do good, now the bad that happens to you is a spoiler alert to the testimony he has for you. And now you can say, whoa, I know my life doesn't look like what I think it should look like, but I know my God is still faithful and good. So even if something bad is happening to me, I know that he's probably working something in the behind the scenes, in the in-between, in the middle for my good at the end. So you know what? If bad comes to me, I don't have to accuse God anymore. I can stand and be faithful and endure in the in-between. There's an in-between for all of us. There's, a, there's, a, there's an inevitable endurance for all of us. And, and, and it's not just for us. I mean, we see this in Scripture. We see that Abraham had an in-between. He had an inevitable endurance. We see that Sarai, Sarah had an inevitable endurance. We see that David, Ruth, Samuel, Daniel. We have all these scriptural heroes that we find who had an inevitable endurance. We even see our Jesus who didn't excuse himself from endurance. Jesus, the same God-man who let himself be tempted into the wilderness for 40 days in fasting. Endurance. We see Jesus, the same Jesus who endured with the disciples for years and years, knowing that they were going to betray him, but still loved them anyway. Endurance. We see Jesus who actually was bearing with the Pharisees, the ones who should have been able to discern who he was from the get, who actually could not even see him correctly in endurance. We see Jesus, the same Jesus who went to the garden of Gethsemane and sweated tears or sweated, uh, 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 sweated drops of blood who actually was saying, God, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. Endurance. We see Jesus who did not despise the same, but endured it to the end, even the end on a cross. Jesus even didn't excuse himself from an endurance. 
And if I might submit to you, if Jesus didn't excuse himself from endurance, why do we think that we should be excused from endurance? From enduring in the in-between. In the in-between. An inevitable endurance or and an essential endurance. An essential endurance. Endurance isn't just inevitable, it's actually essential in the Christian life. We see the Israelites who have come out of Egypt and they've been enslaved for generations. They see the power of God. They know him. He parts the Red Sea. We, we see all, all, all the plagues and the miracles. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can see it in your head, right? The best movie ever. He, he parts the sea in the, in, the, in the fire, in the cloud, and, and he takes them through the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea. As soon as the Israelites go on dry ground to the other side, that's when the Egyptians go to, through the Red Sea. God collapses the walls on, the, on top of the Egyptians. They're enslavers. They're captors. They start praising God because like he delivered us from the people who enslaved us. Now they're kind of tripping again and they go into the wilderness and they're like, man, we don't hate it here. We should, did, is the reason you brought us out here, Moses, because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Do you want us to die out here? Moses is like, God, these people are the worst. And God's like, I know, but I'll help you deal with them. And so what he does is he gives them some manna. He provides for them in the wilderness. He gives them water from a rock. And all of a sudden, the Israelites now have a test testimony about what God can do, not just by delivering them out of Egypt, not just showing his power in Egypt, but showing his provision in the wilderness. And they have left one place of endurance for another. Now, the Israelites, I'm, I'm not sure that they knew that God was teaching them something in the wilderness. I don't know what they thought it was going to be, but I can only imagine that after a while they were realizing, man, that God might have something for me in the in-between. In the, in the in-between. I'm not in the promised land yet, but I'm not in Egypt anymore. I'm, I'm in the in-between. I'm in the in-between. Sometimes I wonder, are we missing God's grace for endurance because we're looking for his power to deliver us out of Egypt instead of his provision in the wilderness. Right? That we might be in a place where we're suffering, we're hurting, we don't know what to do. And some of us are crying out for God to deliver me, save me, take me out of this, make the bad things stop and the good things start. But might I submit to you, what if you're not in Egypt? What if you're in the wilderness? What if you're not in Egypt anymore and you're looking for God's grace to be seen and his power to deliver and not his provision to sustain? And we so often almost idolize deliverance. And here, I love deliverance. I believe in deliverance for you and whatever God has for you. And I know that God has given us a grace to endure and that there is a place where some of us might find ourselves in today that says, I'm not in Egypt, but I'm not in the promised land. He might not be right now wanting to deliver me, pluck me out of, save me from the issue that I find myself in right now. Maybe, just maybe, God is actually giving you a grace not to be delivered from, but to endure within. What if God is asking you to endure right now? An essential endurance. James 1, 
uh, 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, steadfastness. Let that endurance have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, what this scripture teaches us is that trials, resistance, suffering are all tools that God uses to shape you. If you are in the kingdom of God and you are facing a trial or you are suffering or in the in-between, I want you to know that he is not the author of pain and yet he promises to use it. And he uses all of the pain as a tool to shape you into the image of his son. What if God is trying to shape you into the image of his son through the trial? We blame the devil so fast. You know, like as soon as something bad happens, we're like, get behind me, Satan, right? You find those people like super spiritual, they trip and they're like spiritual warfare. And you're just like, "Eh." (laughs) the sidewalk's uneven too, but that's fine. Like we blame the devil so quickly for every bad thing that's happened to us. And, and we just start like pointing fingers. They're like, man, I need to get out of this. And if it's the devil, we're like, we think we need to get out. It's not for us. There's nothing for me in this. If it's the devil, then like, man, God, take me out, pluck me out, save me from, deliver me from this. But oftentimes we think that it's the devil when God might be using that thing to shape us into Christ. What if you're suffering, and I'm not saying it comes from God. What if you're suffering God is trying to use while you're trying to get out of it. So often I think we try and escape from the things that God is trying to shape us in. And God might be saying, you're trying to get out of what I'm trying to form in you. You might be in the wilderness. You might not be in Egypt anymore. What if you're in the wilderness? And we can plug and play anything. We can say like, it's, it's the devil. It's my job. It's the devil. It's, it's, it's the city. It's the devil. It's the pandemic. It's the devil. It's the left. It's right. It's the devil. It's, it's the devil. It's the relationships. Like we can blame the devil for so many things. And God has given us a grace to endure and not just a way of escape out of. What if he's trying to form something inside of you in the in-between? In relationships. I mean... What, what I've realized is that endurance becomes essential within the context of relationship. Endurance becomes essential in the context of relationship. It is, it is so important for us. We see in 1 Corinthians 13, I can't read the whole chapter, but it's the love chapter we see from Paul that love, uh, Paul describes love as all these different things. And he says that it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Beautiful scripture. I wonder what would this church look like if we were marked by enduring relationships? Relationships that kept on going, that felt the grace to endure and not just the the need to cut off as soon as it didn't serve me like I thought that it should. But like iron sharpens iron. So one man or one woman sharpens another that we endure in relationship. And I love that this church is marked by enduring relationships. I mean, Pastor Mark and Miss Debbie, they started this church. They founded this church 39 years ago. Then they went away and did God's work in so many different places. And guess what? 30 years later, 
Coming back and serving at this church and now being willing to serve anywhere, serving or enduring engaging uh, ministry while also being ready and available to go plant back in D.C. Third decades long relationship of endurance. I think about... I think about Stephen Law, who is a, a, a pastor who discipled me when I was in high school. He's been at church for who knows how long. And he, I was about to say a number, but I was like his whole life. And he is now planning our church in Capitol Hill in D.C. I think about Miata Jones, sorry, Pastor Miata, are you here? Yes, you are. Pastor Miata Jones, who has been here her whole life and is now ordained as a pastor last month decades of relationship. I love you. You're the best. <laughs> you look great, by the way. <laughs> Enduring relationship. I think about the elders who are on this staff who most of them, I grew up calling uncle, right? Like elder pastor JC, I've known him for my whole life. And this church is marked by enduring relationships. I think I saw uh, uh, Mr. Temple out here somewhere. Yeah, I love you so much. You're the best. We have so many. <laughs> I'm just going to start calling people out. Hey, you, I love you. Timmy, I love you. Right? They're just going to call people out, right? But here's the thing is that our church is marked by enduring relationships. And I have been marked by this church in enduring relationships. That this church has shaped me and formed me. And it's not that it's always been easy. It's not that all of these things are like, oh, well, they're just great Christians. and that's... No, it's that we endure through relationship. I wonder, what would your life look like? Would you let your faith dream for a minute? What would it look like if you endured in relationships for the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 15 years, the next 25 years, the next 39 years of Grace Covenant Church? What would it look like if you endured in relationships? It's an essential endurance. That endurance is essential when it comes to relationships. I've been marked by this church, and I believe that if you stay here, you'll be marked in a really, really similar way. Oftentimes, we blame the devil for what God is actually doing. That God is shaping something in the inside of us, and we try and escape what God is actually trying to use to shape. We abandon our shaping way too soon. And here's the truth. If God is intentional, then that means that every single thing can be used for his glory and for my good. If God is intentional, if God is good, if he is who he says that he is, there is something in the in-between for me. There's something in this for me. God has something in this for me. And every time I try and escape out of it, I need to remind my soul there's something in this for me. God is shaping me inside of this. That there is something, and that's the key word, in this, in this. There's something in this, in the in-between. In um, Mark chapter, uh, we can't read it right now, but in um, Mark chapter Four, Mark chapter 4, it says this. We find that uh, Jesus is about to take his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And um, if you've been in church or you've been around for a while, you know the stories that Jesus says to them, hey, we're going to go to the other side. We're going to go to the other side. They get in the boat. As soon as they get in the boat, um, Jesus falls asleep. And as soon as he falls asleep, there's like this crazy storm that comes up and the disciples are all freaking out. They don't know what to do. 
and they're bailing water and they're just freaking out and they scream and they go to Jesus and they're like, don't you care that we're perishing? And it's this crazy story of God like calming the waves and calming the sea. And every single like time I hear this passage, I always think of it or hear it spoken as like, God said, you're going to the other side. Like, why don't you believe him? You're going to the other side. You might be in a storm, but take our, you're going to the other side. And I've probably preached that before and I believe it. We're going to the other side. And we always make fun of the disciples because we're like, he said you were going to the other side. Where's your faith? Can we just take a moment? They thought they were going to die. Like they were in a storm, fishermen bailing water. They're like, this is the end. They thought they were going to die. And we so often are like, where's your faith? And I'm like, they were, they were in the in-between. They weren't on shore, but they weren't on the other side. They were in the in-between. And so often we focus on Jesus saying, we're going to the other side. Deliverance. But there's this moment a few verses later in verse 41 that says this. It says, we, we, we see it because Jesus wasn't just saying this. Um, but Jesus wasn't just, uh, let me just read. But it wasn't just because Jesus wanted them to know that he kept his word. He led them into a storm he knew was coming because he knew that they were going to get a revelation of who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him. You remember verse 40, 41? He comes out of the boat sleeping. They're screaming at him, accusing him. And they wake Jesus up saying, don't you care that we're perishing? He comes up and he goes, And it's like about to go back to sleep. And the disciples are like, what? And the winds and the waves calm down. Everyone's like, what just happened? And Jesus is standing there and the winds and the waves, everything calms down. And then all of the disciples said, it looks, they had fear and they looked at him and they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What if we are so focused on getting to the other side testimony, we miss out on the who is this testimony? That we're so, so preoccupied with saying, when I get to the other side of this financial issue, when I get to the other side of this relational issue, when I get to the other side of this family issue, when I get to the other side of this mental health issue, that we always are saying, wait till I get to the other side. We clock out, we wait, and we're so focused on there that we lose the endurance and the grace needed for here. And God might be saying... You're going to get a testimony in the in-between of who is this that even my sick body obeys him? Who is this that even my family obeys him? Who is this that even my country obeys him? Who is this that even this pandemic obeys Who is this that even my mental health obeys him? Who is this that even this decades-long addiction obeys him? Who is this that this loneliness obeys him? What if the Lord is trying to give you a who is this testimony and not just a the other side testimony? I'm talking about the in-between. The in-between, there's something in the middle for you. And so often we try and get to the other side and forsake the, who is this? He's trying to shape something in you, an, an essential endurance, an essential endurance. And lastly, a hopeful endurance, a hopeful endurance. It says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. 
because God's love, listen to this, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, a godly hope is tied to a godly endurance. And a godly endurance is tied to a godly hope. Where's your hope? What, what, what is your hope in? Some of us would really benefit from taking an audit of our hope. Where is it placed? Where does it live? Does it live in your job? Does it live in every time you look at your bank account, you say, it's worth it. Does it live in that your, your, your kids are so successful and then you can tell everybody about it? Does it live in that you have a certain amount of letters behind your name? Does it live in that you started from the bottom and now you're here? Does it live in how successful that you are? Some of y'all know that far too well, right? <laughs> Where does your hope live? Because sometimes we realize that our hope doesn't actually live in God, it lives in us. There's something that Pastor AJ and I have been saying for a little bit now is that if you don't have any hope, borrow some from me. If you don't have any hope, borrow some from me. Now, I'm not saying that I am the source of your hope. That's unhealthy. It's not good. I can't be the source of your hope. I can be the church. I can support you. I can uplift you. I can encourage you. And you don't need me to tell you that our world needs hope. What I would encourage you to do is stockpile hope in your life. Take a lot of hope. Gather as much hope as you can from the scriptures. Find as much hope as you can in who Jesus is. Because you and I both know that we don't just need hope for ourselves. We need hope for our communities. And we need hope for our families. And for the people who show up to us at work and they seem and know they're hopeless. And what if we were the type of people who said, man, I know you don't have any hope, but borrow some from me. I have some to spare. Why? Not because I'm so good and I have a lot, but because I know him and I've been spending time with him. So how about I give you some hope because I've been stockpiling it for my community. I've been holding it for my family. I've been trying to give it away because I've been so freely given this hope. I now freely give this hope. Where is your hope? Where's your hope? If you don't have some, borrow some from me. It's a hope that God is going to do something in the in-between. That this, 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 this suffering produces endurance. And this endurance produces character. And the character produces hope. And the hope does not put me to shame. When you look at these two different scriptures, Exodus 14 and Exodus 16, we can so be focused on his power to deliver. And what I want to encourage you with, church, is that God's grace to deliver you is no greater than his grace to sustain you. And God's grace to sustain you is no less than his grace to deliver you. And the faith to endure is no less than the faith to be delivered. Some of us think, I need to have the most faith that God's going to take every bad thing away. But sometimes the most faith that we need is that, God, I'm going to stay right here and believe that you are shaping something in me for your glory and for my good. God's grace to deliver you is no greater than his grace to sustain you. And God might be trying to sustain you in the middle of what you're facing 
right now. I wonder, would it benefit us to start praying prayers, not so much of deliverance, but of endurance? To not say, God, take me out of the bad thing, but Lord, shape me inside of the bad thing. We so often are focused on the other side rather than inside. When I get to the other side, Jesus said, we're going to the other side. When I get out of debt on the other side, when I get a good family on the other side, when I move from this city on the other side, when I stop having this mental struggle on the other side, and Jesus might be saying, don't focus so much on the other side, but maybe, just maybe, he's trying to get your attention on the inside, in the in-between, that there's an other side grace for you, and there's also an inside grace with you, that God is with you in the struggle, not just taking you to the destination. What if God is saying there's something for you inside and not just on the other side? The grace to endure is no less than the grace to deliver. It's no less than the grace to deliver. And I want to read one more scripture to you. Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory with the glory that will be so revealed in us. You know what I read and what I notice from Scripture is that pain preaches and trials teach. What are you being preached and what are you being taught? Your pain preaches something. And your trials are teaching you something, but what are you being taught? I beg you, do not get delivered without learning a lesson. Don't just get to the other side without learning something. Because here's the truth, y'all. We think, oh, because I'm in a trial, I'm going to come out on the other side better. No. Just because you suffered doesn't mean that you got better. Movement is inevitable, but growth is optional. You have to opt into growth. And some of us are in the middle, in the in-between. We're not in the promised land, but we're not in Egypt. We're in the wilderness. And we're trying to say, God, I'm just going to get through it and I'm going to be better at the end. Let me tell you something. Where's your hope? Where's your endurance? Because Jesus is trying to shape you in the in-between. And it's not just a matter of, oh, when I get to the end of this, I'm going to be better. You might be in a different city. You might be in a different relationship. You might be at a different job. But that doesn't mean that you'll be any different. Growth is optional. Are you opting into the growth? Which means you're opting into the grace. Which means you're opting into the endurance. Which means you're opting into the hope. I'm choosing all of those things. I'm not just going to assume that I'm going to reach the other side in a different place. But God has given us the grace to endure. What is your pain preaching to you? Because in the kingdom of God, we know, Romans 5, it can preach to you character, hope, and joy. If you're in the kingdom of God, your suffering can preach to you. It can preach endurance. It can preach character. It can preach hope. What is your pain preaching to you? I'm begging you, don't get delivered without learning a lesson in the in-between. In Christ, even your pain must submit to God. All of your suffering has to submit to God if you're in the kingdom. What, God, what might God be producing on the inside of you? Not just saying, I'm trying to deliver you from, but shape you in the middle of this is a hope that we have to attach ourselves to. 
This is the hope that attached itself to us. When I became a Christian, it's not that I start to go through different things. It's that now God has given me the grace to go through things differently. As a Christian, your life is not promised that you're going to go through a different situation than what the world goes through. That your life will be seemingly easier and better than what the world's life is. The promise that scripture gives us is that not that you'll go through different things, but you'll go through things differently. And that you can go through things with somebody That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. My hope is connected to something. And we see in Jude a beautiful promise of hope. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It is God's great joy to present you before his glory and to keep you in the in-between. That is God's great joy. And I want to encourage you, you might feel like you're in the in-between. Don't try and keep yourself. This is not a self-help message. Hear me. I'm not saying leave this room and try harder and be better. Smile more through pain and believe that there's going to be. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, would you, would you look at the one who endured for you and know that he is enduring with you? That Jesus Christ will keep you. He'll shape you. He'll hold you. Some of us really need to know that Jesus is holding you while you endure. That he's taking care of you. And he's guarding you. He's protecting you. He's sustaining you. He's not just delivering you, but he's keeping you. Not just keeping you from, but keeping you in. He's keeping you. And there's a truth that the Lord will hold you far better than you can hold yourself. And the grace to endure that he's given you, he'll walk with you in the middle of. All my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been sacrificed, he with him to win this life he will hold me fast till I faith is turned to sight when he comes at last let him sing this over he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so promise for you. He will hold me fast and for my Savior loves me so. Sing that one more time. He will hold me fast. This is God's truth for you. In the middle of a trial, in the middle of suffering, that there's a God who's holding on to you. There's a God who's sustaining you, who's keeping you. He will hold 
Would you let this truth be sung over your life right now in the in-between? Would you receive this promise of Jesus? receive your grace. We receive it, Jesus. God, that your grip on us is better than our grip on you. God, we entrust our souls to you. That in the kingdom of God, I don't have to sustain myself but I have a God who sustains me. I have a God who graces me, who gives me an unearned, undeserved favor that helps me endure in the in-between. And I believe that there are some people in this room who are receiving a fresh grace to endure in the in-between. And that God is trying to teach you That his grip on you, his spirit on the inside of you, is the strength that you need not to get to the other side, but to be shaped on the inside. God, you love us so. God, hold everyone in this room. Keep them and sustain them.